Before we open God's word, let's pray. Lord, give us a spirit to understand your word. Give us a heart to obey your word. And thank you for giving us your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Our story begins with the ending of the very first Christian missionary uh, journey. Traveling an estimated 1,400 miles, Paul and Barnabas had led an evangelistic team throughout Asia Minor, baptizing numerous converts and organizing many churches. The missionaries made their final stop at the port city of Italia. Here they caught a boat headed back to their home base, Antioch. They had completed three exciting years, and they were ready for a furlough. We begin with Acts 14, verse 26. From Attilia, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. What a testimony they had of miracles and wonders that God had performed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, verse 27 tells us. This testimony was so important that God arranged for the testimony to be given again and again. Testimony is effective. And this testimony galvanized the Antioch church into greater efforts to win Gentiles to Jesus. But while God was using Paul's testimony to advance the gospel cause in Antioch, Satan was inspiring his agents to carry a far different testimony to Jerusalem. Jews who had rejected and opposed God, uh, Paul's gospel message wrote letters and traveled to Jerusalem for business and for the annual feast. Their testimony was of synagogues being split and homes divided by Paul in the most inflammatory manner. Uh, they told how Paul was causing Jews to cast aside long-established traditions and customs. They blamed Paul, Paul for stirring up dissension among Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. These testimonies stirred up the anger of the Jews that were in Jerusalem. These, uh, this made a very interesting situation. As a Jew, Saul had caused persecution in Jerusalem. But now as a Christian, it seemed like he was causing persecution in Jerusalem for Christians. The life of Paul abounds in such ironies. Saul's persecution of the church in Jerusalem caused Christians to flee to Antioch, where they established the church, which Paul's ministry subsequently built up. Saul first went out from Judea to oppose Christians, while Christians later went out from Judea to oppose Paul. That brings us to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea. Though these men had been sent to Antioch, Syria by the leading brethren in Jerusalem on official church business, they carried an unofficial agenda for the verse continues that they taught the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The introduction of this new and false teaching made of none effect the life and sacrifice of Christ. It did away with the prophecy of Daniel 9.27 that Christ, the Prince of the Covenant, would cause the sanctuary sacrifice and offering to cease. It, it attempted to mend and restore the veil that an angel hand had ripped apart at Christ's death. Paul was well familiar with this teaching, for he had once taught it himself. During the trial of Stephen, he had supported the accusation of false witnesses 
who stated that Stephen taught that Jesus of Nazareth will change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. As a Jew, Saul had made this accusation against Christians, but now Christians are making this same accusation against Paul. After his conversion, Paul realized that in Jesus' life, type had met antitype, ending the purpose of the ceremonial rituals given by Moses at God's command. Careful students of the Word had recognized this truth immediately that unforgettable Passover weekend that Christ was crucified. We should note this statement from Desire of Ages, and I'm reading. From the crucifixion to the resurrection, many sleepless eyes were constantly searching the prophecies, some to learn the full meaning of the feast they were then celebrating, many who at that time united in the service never again took part in the Paschal rites. They got it. The ritual service had no further value. The deliverance from bondage in Egypt, in Egypt had been superseded by the deliverance of bondage from sin. Type had met antitype. The communion service replaced the Passover service. The one sacrifice on the cross had replaced the daily sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. They were now Christians. Sketches from the life of Paul states it succinctly. The law of ceremonies was made null and void by the crucifixion of Christ. The pro-circumcision teaching was a new heresy. Appealing to the, cultured prejudice, the cultural prejudices of long-held tradition of the Jews, it attempted to inject a fundamental change into Christianity, not authorized by Jesus. In contrast, the pro-Christian teaching of Paul was the continuation, renewal, and flowering of the teaching of patriarch and prophet. Acts 15, verse 2 says, Therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. This was the proper response for his sketches from the life of Paul states, In every age the archenemy adapts his temptations to the prejudices or inclinations of the people. It is the duty of every faithful servant of God to firmly and decidedly withstand these perverters of the faith and to fearlessly expose their errors by the word of truth. Paul and Barnabas were both prophets with an inspired message. They pointed their hearers to appropriate and plain scripture. This should have settled the issue. But the pro-circumcision party was not open to the spirit of prophecy. Paul and Barnabas spent earnest time in prayer. God's answer came to them by revelation, instructing the brethren to go to Jerusalem for a general church council. Since biblically-based global church unity is a priority with God, local practices that impact the church globally must be decided globally. Amen. We see this was true from the very beginning of the Christian church. Yet God's instruction was counterintuitive. How could a general conference in Jerusalem solve the problem when Jerusalem seemed to be the source of the heresy? But trusting the divine directive, the Antioch church members ceased debating and sent representatives to Jerusalem. An uncircumcised Gentile convert, Titus, went up with them. 
I like Titus' spirit. He was willing to be circumcised or remain uncircumcised depending on the decision of the general conference. Verse 3 continues, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. The trip south to Jerusalem was a little more than 210 miles. And Paul and Barnabas, as often as they could, would stop and meet with believers on their way south to share their testimony. Their reports of God's mighty work among the Gentiles were very inspiring. These testimonies reminded the Jewish believers that the gospel message was to be preached to all nations and that God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Verse 4, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. Once again, they reported all things that God had done with them. But the testimony that had, got, that had brought great joy to Antioch, Phoenicia, and Samaria brought no joy to Jerusalem. Though they related the success that had attended the ministry, their testimony contained an important addition. Sketches from the life of Paul tells how they tactfully also told of, and I quote, the confusion that had resulted from the fact that certain converted Pharisees declared that the Gentile converts must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Sometimes Paul is misportrayed as rigid and dogmatic. That might have been true of the Pharisee Saul, but it was not true of the Christian Paul who was like Jesus. Gentle, soft-hearted, easily entreated. In fact, four years after this experience, when he had returned to Jerusalem with the Gentile donations, he was too accommodating to the advice of the church leaders, and it resulted in his arrest and imprisonment. Gentle, tactful, respectful courtesy was the striking characteristic of Paul, and it was the secret of his evangelistic success. Sketches from the life of Paul contains an accurate description. She says, by cheerful, patient kindness and Christian courtesy, he won the hearts of the people, quieted their prejudices, and endeavored to teach them the truth without exciting their combativeness. In my specialty of dermatology, I must sometimes tell patients that they have a melanoma. This is never pleasant to say or to hear. I try to say it as gently as possible, but occasionally, despite my best efforts, patients are unwilling to hear the diagnosis. Paul tried to tell this group of church leaders as gently as he could the serious and contagious spiritual disease in their midst, but they did not hear him. Instead, they viewed him as the problem, and they presented their own way forward. From time to time, the freeway of life brings us to a fork in the road, and we must choose which road to take. There comes a time when compromise is unachievable. Further delay is impossible. A decision must be made between two choices. The early church was faced with just such a situation. Gentiles could not be partially circumcised. Circumcision was either necessary or it was unnecessary. The Bible alone must provide the answer. The church could not create truth. It could not 
modify truth. It could not abolish truth. The church by vote could only accept or reject truth. It may be helpful to briefly examine the nine prominent characteristics of the circumcision party. First, we should note that they were sincere. Inspiration tells us they sincerely thought. Second, the pro-circumcision party prided themselves on being moderate and progressive. They regarded the Jews' belief that only the physical descendants of Abraham could be saved as the extreme right. They regarded the Christian position that Gentiles could be saved without following the Mosaic laws as the extreme left. They advocated a new position, a third position, that Gentiles could be saved if they were circumcised and accepted the traditional ceremonial laws. They sincerely thought they were introducing a new way, a medium ground between the two extremes of Jew and Gentile. They believed this would build bridges between Jew and, and Christian and overcome Jewish prejudice. But their bridge brought Judaism to Christianity, not Christianity to Judaism. It was the fast track to pharisaical tradition. Their new doctrine was promoting a superficial and selective outward compliance to God's law in place of an unconditional surrender to God's will. Ellen White says, and I quote, they sincerely thought that in taking this medium ground between Jew and Christian, they would succeed in removing the odium which attached to Christianity. But you cannot remove the cross of Christ from Christianity. The problem with their compromising position was not only what it affirmed, but also what it failed to affirm. Like fast food, the pro-circumcision party's solution not only contained that which was objectionable, but it lacked that which was essential. Their message was imbalanced, incomplete, lacking essential gospel vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and fiber. The Christian message requires us to declare the whole counsel of God, not just the politically acceptable counsel of man. The pro-circumcision party's testimony was false, neglecting, clarifying truths. Compromise with error always means surrender of the truth. Third, the pro-circumcision party promoted their approach as an important new evangelistic tool. They felt their moderate progressive view, quote, would gather in large numbers of the Jews. How true is Solomon's twice-repeated warning, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. In place of being the new right answer, it was just another wrong answer. Instead of strengthening the cause of truth, it weakened the cause of truth by dividing the believers. It is a law of the mind that the rejection of truth gives a religious zeal that borders on fanatical. Inspiration is plain. I quote, those who will not themselves accept the truth are most zealous that others shall not receive it. Growing up in a minister's home, I had the opportunity to frequently observe how rejection of truth brought with it an energetic zeal in opposing truth and promoting error. The pro-circumcision party is important for us to study. They are a prototype for last-day deceptions within the church. This will happen in the future. Speaking of the church, Ellen White stated, in these last days, false teachers will arise and become actively zealous. False theories will be mingled with every phase of experience and advocated with satanic earnestness. 
In the very midst of us will arise false teachers giving heed to seducing spirits whose doctrines are of satanic origin. This is a clear, unambiguous warning, brothers and sisters. Fourth, the pro-circumcision party was sent to Antioch on official church business, but they misused their church position. They promoted their personal pet theories. By exceeding their authority, they revealed themselves unrestrained by God-appointed church-delegated authority. Fifth, they promoted a party spirit. They are called of the sect of the Pharisees who believe. Sometimes they are referred to as those of the circumcision and of the concision, Philippians 3.2. Sixth, they divided and unsettled members. Fruit is a reliable way to test a message. The fruit of Paul's message was strengthened churches, but the fruit of the pro-circumcision party was divided, weakened churches, which they then blamed on Paul. The pro-circumcision movement was a repeat of Lucifer's rebellion in heaven. Though professing complete loyalty to God, Lucifer rejected God's appointed messenger, Jesus, and God's appointed order. Lucifer professed to be promoting the harmony of heaven and accused the loyal of being the cause of the division in heaven. It is little wonder that Paul warned the Philippians, beware of the false circumcision and classed them with evil workers. Seventh, the pro-circumcision party exhibited a willful, stubborn, and independent spirit. Paul tells us they were contradictory, insisting on their own way, with apparent humility and conscientiousness. Yet they undermine divinely appointed church structure and lawful authority. Titus 1.10 puts it this way, for there are many insubordinate, especially those of the circumcision. Volume 4 of the Testimonies warns against those today who, and I'm quoting, take a course of their own choosing instead of leading persons to become consecrated to God and to listen to the voice of the church, they teach them to be independent and not to mind the opinions and judgment of others. An eighth characteristic of the pro-circumcision party is rejection of Paul's instruction. These men professed a high view of Scripture, but they did not accept the spirit of prophecy as manifested through Paul. Some regarded Paul's instruction as applicable only to certain local situations. Finally, those in the pro-circumcision party mistook, mistook cultural sensitivity for biblical faithfulness. Prevailing custom and tradition profoundly impact all of us. This was true even of the earliest Christians. Blinded by familiar culture, Fallacious arguments were persuasive to Jewish believers that were easily rejected by Gentile converts. There's important insight contained in the statement of the pro-circumcision party, Acts 15.5. It is necessary to circumcise them. The real issue of most conflicts can be discovered by a simple question, what is it that is felt to be necessary? It is only as individuals believe something is necessary that they feel justified, even righteous, in promoting it. It gives them a cause. If it is really morally necessary, then it is not just related to the dominant culture of the times. If it is necessary, then those agitating the question are right to push it. 
If it is not necessary, the agitators have lost their legitimacy for pushing merely a personal or cultural agenda. There is a group within the Seventh-day Adventist Church that feel it is necessary to ordain women to the office of overseer. Women's ordination supporters agree that there is no explicit Bible command to ordain women. There is no contemporary living prophet living to confirm its correctness. Yet woman's ordination to the gospel ministry is still felt, felt to be such a moral imperative that some enthusiasts feel it is worth dying for. For 4,000 years before the cross, it wasn't necessary. Jesus didn't find it necessary in his life and ministry. The early church did not find it necessary. The book Great Controversy tells us of the Waldensians. In their purity and simplicity, they resembled the church of apostolic times, Great Controversy 68. They did not find it necessary to ordain women. The reformers did not find it necessary. God raised up the remnant church, and it wasn't necessary for the pioneers. In the New Jerusalem, human culture has no influence, and the mistakes of earth are corrected. Yet the men selected as leaders of both the Old and New Testament are honored in heaven. Nothing is corrected. No woman's name is added. On the foundation are the names of the sons of Israel, not the daughter. On the gates of the are the names of the disciples of Jesus, all males. We continue with Acts 15, verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. The deliberation must have begun with earnest prayer for unity, and God heard the prayer and sent testimony to bring unity. Verse 7, and when there had been much dispute. From a historical perspective, I would love to have had the entire transcript of the meeting. But we are seeing something about God's character. He did not preserve the arguments that divided the early Christians. Instead, he preserved the testimony that would serve to unite them. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. We should note Peter's introduction carefully. Men and brethren, you know. He wisely begins with something they all agree on, something they are familiar with and, and accept as truth. You know that a good while ago, God chose among us. God decides. He chooses among us. That's his right, not our right. God is the one who chooses among his angels and gives them their tasks. And God is the one that chooses among his servants on earth and assigns them their missions. We do not demand our tasks. We accept our tasks. It is not our will, but God's will that is to be done. Je Jeremiah said, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. It was God who chose the apostles and appointed them their work. Jesus had told the twelve, you did not choose me, but I chose and you and appointed you. God chose among us, Peter said, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God selected a specific angel to deliver a special message to Cornelius. Though this angel was in every way more qualified than Peter, the angel was not given the privilege of giving his testimony 
to Cornelius. The angel's task was to connect Cornelius with the one who was appointed to give his testimony. An angel was also given the task to prepare Peter for this assignment. It was important that each did their assigned task. The first manifestation of Lucifer's rebellion in heaven was Lucifer stepping outside his assigned task. God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. When these Gentiles heard the testimony of Peter, they did believe. Peter continued in verse 8, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Both could have purifying righteousness only by faith. Peter's statement was clear and uncompromised. Then, moved by the Spirit, Peter gave a sharp rebuke and warning to the pro-circumcision party. He began with similar language that he had used with Sapphira just before she was struck down by the judgments of God. Verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Testing God is a very serious thing to do. We'll briefly look at what Peter meant by this uh, expression. First, we test God by hypocrisy, Matthew 22, 18. We test God when we profess a commitment to God that we do not really have. The wily Pharisees and scribes said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and, and teach the way of God in truth. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Second, we test God when we use Scripture to promote wrongdoing like Satan did when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. The inspired writings are not given us as a smorgasbord from which we pick and choose our practices and beliefs. They are given as our exclusive source for doctrine and practice. In testing God, it is testing God when inspired passages are twisted and misapplied to promote falsehood. We are forbidden to teach as commands of God what is merely opinion of man. Ellen White wrote in the review, Many give the words of Scripture a meaning that suits their own opinions, and they mislead themselves and deceive others by their misinterpretation of God's word. Third, we test God when we fail to wait for his counsel, Psalm 106, 13 and 14. In the wilderness, the Israelites became impatient, refusing to wait for his counsel, finding a compliant leader. They forged ahead and made a golden calf. They adopted the the worship practices of the cultural influences around them, and then called this the worship of Jehovah. This is testing God. Fourth, we test God by complaining of his ways, Exodus 17, 2. The Israelites tested God by complaining of his providences or accusing those whom God was using. 
To one individual, Ellen White wrote, you are continually finding fault with circumstances, which is nothing less than finding fault with providences. You are continually casting about for somebody or something to answer the place of a scapegoat upon which you can then lay the blame. Lastly, we test God when we pervert his commands. Peter compared the pharisaical corruption of the ceremonial system with its traditions to an unbearable yoke for either Jew or Gentile, quite different from the easy yoke of Jesus. We test God when we require what God does not require. But we just as surely test God when we dismiss what God does, in fact, require. Peter's testimony was pointed. The pro-circumcision party pretense to full biblical faithfulness was hypocritical. They were misusing the Bible to promote error. They were running ahead of the Lord, worshiping their own way and calling their desires God's commands. They were unrestrained by God's instruction. They were making accusations against Paul, God's anointed. Peter then declared clearly and forcibly what was necessary for Jew and Gentile. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, verse 11. By this important statement, Peter declared that it was grace, not race, that saved the Jew. He declared that the pro-circumcision party had it backward. Instead of the Gentile needing to become like the Jew, the Jew needed to become like the Gentile and have the heart circumcision of the Gentile, the heart purified by faith in order to be saved. Peter gently softened his home thrust by including himself. We shall be saved in the same manner as they. And Peter's statement remains true for us here today. We are saved in the same manner as they. Our hearts, too, must be purified by faith. Peter's pointed testimony with its strong rebuke was the first step toward unity. Volume 3 of the Testimonies declares, God designs that his people shall be a unit, that they shall see eye to eye and be of the same mind and of the same judgment. This cannot be accomplished without a clear-pointed living testimony in the church. End of quote. When we pray for unity, we are praying that God will restore a clear-pointed living testimony in his church today. And this type of testimony will come because as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, and Jesus loves me, this I know. With Peter's rebuke ringing in their ears, verse 12 says, All the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. This was no slick PR marketing gimmick. These were real miracles and wonders. What stories did they relate? We only have a few preserved. Elamus the sorcerer struck with blindness. Virtually the entire city of Antioch, Pisidia, trying to crowd into a synagogue for a Sabbath service. An unstoppable message of the gospel spreading like wildfire throughout the region of southeastern Turkey. Fierce persecution resulting in a message being joyfully spread to Iconium where great multitudes of both Jew and Gentile converts were causing a citywide division. Persecution, spreading the message to the cities in the region of Lyconia. The healing of a congenital cripple, resulting in an attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods, followed by the stoning of Paul and his apparent, apparent miraculous recovery. 
Persecution, spreading the gospel to Derby, resulting in another large ingathering of souls. From time to time, I see patients with open sores of parigo nodularis. They usually have scars. The sores may be infected. Sometimes I will see a patient with lichen simplex chronicus. Both these skin problems are self-inflicted from repeatedly scratching and rubbing and itching. The cure is to stop the scrap, scratching and rubbing. The church right now has a self-inflicted disease with wounds open to the world. Further ag agitation won't help this since it was the agitation that caused the problem in the first place. The solution is the discipline that my patients need, the discipline from the head to control the hands. When Paul and Barnabas concluded their testimony of God's work among the heathen, a solemn stillness from the Lord reigned over the assembly, and the general conference was finally ready to come to a decision. The head was to regain control of the body. Beginning with verse 13, after, and after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Like the fair-minded Bereans, James was comparing Peter's testimony to the Scripture. Like the Old Testament church, like Jesus, James could speak with authority from an it is written, a plain, thus saith the Lord. Patriarchs and Prophets plainly says, the work of Moses, of the 70 elders, of the rulers and judges was simply to enforce the laws that God had given. They had no authority to legislate for the nation. This was, she says, and continued to be the condition of Israel's existence as a nation. This is just as true for the church. James understood this. Though he gave one reference as a sample, he acknowledges that the writings of all the prophets agree. It was on Scripture, not the testimony of miracle and wonders, that the early church placed its confidence. A general conference is not above the Bible. Without Bible authority, even the early apostolic church had no authority. James doesn't say, we believe because of the testimony and miracles being performed by Paul and Barnabas. He doesn't even refer to them. The early church was in danger of straying from the Bible. By using the Bible just as it is written without complicated commentary, James was using the Bible to correct the errors seeking admittance into the church. In verse 16, James continued by quoting Amos. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. David's kingdom was a type of Christ's kingdom. Ultimately, Gentiles made up a significant portion of David's empire. 
these Gentile subjects like Atei were loyal and trustworthy, enlarging, enriching, and strengthening David's kingdom. But David's Gentile subjects were not required to be circumcised to become citizens. As it was, as it was depicted in the type, so it would be in a much greater measure in the antitype. Isaiah describes the tabernacle of David as the throne room of the restored kingdom the Messiah would set up. Following the ascension of Christ and the heavenly pageantry of the enthronement in the heavenly sanctuary, the good angels were energized, while on this earth, Satan's angels were dispirited. It was at this key moment that Pentecost came. And in an instant, the tabernacle of David was rebuilt. In holy vision, God had shown Amos this restoration of David's kingdom, and that a major purpose in this restored kingdom was to bring Gentile subjects flooding into this kingdom, those that were called by God's name. By the sure word of God, it was the time of the Gentiles. In further agreement with Peter, James adds that God had planned for this all along. Verse 18 says, known to God from eternity are all his works. From eternity, God knows what he's going to do, and he has given us his promise that he will not make changes in the future that he has not revealed to his prophets in the past. God makes no hasty, last-minute, poorly thought-through choices that he suddenly springs on us. His choices were long before we were born. From his vantage point of eternity, he chooses among us. In Acts 15, we see the same pattern that is given throughout the Bible. It is the present truth principle. Present truth is a past prophecy that is fulfilled in the present. Present truth is light that guides us in making our decisions. There are many examples of this principle, but we'll mention only four. The change from the firstborn being the priest to the priesthood being restricted to the Levites, actually to Aaronites, was first prophesied by Jacob. But it was not present truth until authorized by the prophet Moses. The change from judge to king was prophetic truth when prophesied by Jacob, then Moses, but it was not present truth until authorized by the prophet Samuel. The change from united to divided kingdom was first prophesied by Hijah, but it was not present truth until authorized by the prophet Shemaiah. We must not miss this. It is always God's word that guides. We do not look to the whims of the people for guidance. We look to prophetic truth with prophetic authorization for any change we support. This is why God's word brings unity. Jeroboam was authorized to be king of northern Israel, but no such authorization was given him to introduce worship changes or priesthood changes. The divided kingdom was present truth and must be allowed. But the divided worship and priesthood change was apostasy and must not be supported by the faithful in Israel. Ellen White asked an important question, what valid reason can be given for a change which the scriptures do not sanction? Great Controversy 54. 
Before accepting a worship change, Great Controversy admonishes us to demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. The word of God is clear. When a dispute is raging in the church, Exodus 23, 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after the many to pervert justice. Pilate did not follow this counsel of the Lord. Instead, he followed the crowd to do evil. He let the loudest voices make the choice. He went with the easy, popular side. But when the early church leadership was tested, they did not make their decision based on the local vocal majority. Peter and James were guided in their testimony by the present truth principle, not by the popular error principle. They would not turn aside after many to pervert justice. The wilderness was a type of God's people to the close of time. Though all leaving Egypt were commanded to be circumcised, a short time into the wilderness wandering, the children of Israel were forbidden to circumcise the newborns. Those born during the wilderness wandering were uncircumcised, and they entered the land of Canaan uncircumcised. As in the type, much more in the antitype. This became prophetic truth by Amos, Isaiah, Daniel. It became present truth when it was authorized by Jesus and the apostles. With clear prophetic guidance, James was prepared to make a motion, verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from a sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Although circumcision was the flashpoint, this reveals that there were three items that were also included in the discussion besides this. Meats offered to idols, the use of blood in food preparation, and immorality. Unlike the ceremonial laws, which were temporary, these three involved the moral law. The second commandment forbids idolatry. The sixth commandment demands the preservation of health with avoidance of activities that would shorten life. And the seventh commandment prohibits moral impurity. The Jerusalem Council recognized the eternal nature of the moral law and upheld it, differentiating it from the temporary ceremonial system. Putting personal prejudices and feelings aside, the apostles, elders, and representatives of the world church passed this motion unanimously. The pro-circumcision heresy was rejected. The Gentile convert Titus was not required to be circumcised by the council, and apparently he never did get circumcised. Furthermore, the council affirmed the work of Paul and Barnabas while the self-appointed work of the pro-circumcision party was exposed and explicitly condemned. Regardless of their church position, their church connection, these agitators did not speak for the church. They were simply giving their personal opinion and private interpretations. The council sent respected church leaders to Antioch to give their testimony of the decisions of the general conference and affirm the value of Paul and Barnabas' mission and message. And that's the story of Acts 15, but through the centuries, Acts 15 has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Historically, it has been used as a key argument by Sunday keepers to justify the change from Sabbath to Sunday. Although woman's ordination is not in the same category as the Sabbath, 
The underlying arguments historically put forward by the proponents of Sunday are strikingly similar to the arguments sometimes put forward today by those in favor of woman's ordination. Since the Jerusalem Council decision is used by an, as an argument by those supporting women's ordination and by Sunday keepers, the arguments deserve a closer examination. While Sunday advocates acknowledged that Sunday was not explicitly commanded in the Bible, they denied that it was explicitly forbidden. However, if Sunday keeping is not a command of God, it must be a command of man. Tradition is basing a doctrine on the commandments of men, and that is testing God. Since we are to teach only what God commands, and we are not to add to his words, what is not expressly commanded is excluded from true doctrine. Since both Sabbath observance and circumcision are taught in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was likened to circumcision. Furthermore, it was denied that the Sabbath was explicitly commanded in the New Testament. The trajectory of the Bible was said to be the Lord's Day, Sunday. The clearest texts were misinterpreted, reinterpreted, and explained away by scholars, while other texts were taken out of context. At first, both Sunday and Sabbath were treated in an egalitarian way. But gradually, God's order was reversed until finally it was abandoned altogether. Those men-pleasers who were without conviction and were therefore tolerant of both Sunday and Sabbath considering uh, the topic to be non-essential, were lauded as truly enlightened by the gospel spirit. That's a quote from history. Although efforts were made to give some biblical relationship to Sunday keeping, the actual source of Sunday keeping was not the Bible, but pagan culture. Sunday keeping was urged as necessary to increase the number of converts, undoubtedly to keep from losing young people and to keep the church fresh and relevant. As Sunday began to be adopted, it seemed to cause no great problem. Each council's decision was never quite enough to satisfy those pushing Sunday worship. But building on the last compromise, those in favor of this innovation would bring it back again and again to gain further concessions. The pastors of Sunday-keeping churches reported how God was blessing and there were wonders and miracles. Those defending the Sabbath were demonized as Judaizers like the circumcision party seen in Acts 15. Sabbath defenders were marginalized and silenced. Rome, leader in this apostasy, refused to wait for the rest of the church and forged ahead professing to honor Jesus by honoring the day of his resurrection. Of course, the moment the church placed itself above the Bible and permitted Sunday in some regions, it was inevitable that this apostasy would, would ultimately spread to all regions. The foundation of the Roman Catholic heresy was its sup supplementing the word of God, like Uzzah, steadying the ark. This permeates every part of this early Christian apostasy. The Catholic Church disregards the Sabbath, but it also disregards God's instruction on ordination, refusing to allow the bishops to be the husband of one wife. 
Great Controversy states, the very beginning of the great apostasy was in seeking to supplement the authority of God by that of the church. Rome began by enjoining, she says, what God had not forbidden, and she ended by forbidding what he had explicitly enjoined. For the church to be engaged in a major study on the laying on of hands should make us very humble. Since Paul lists this as a beginner's doctrine, part of the mother's milk of the word, a subject suitable for spiritual babies, those unskilled in the word of God, Hebrews 5, 12 through 6, 2. The laying on of hands in ordination was easily understood in practice from the beginning by the Adventist pioneers, even before the church was officially organized. Though the laying on of hands is not a difficult subject, it is important for Paul listed as one of Christianity's foundational beliefs. The Bible warns, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11:3. Since the pillars of the Seventh-day Adventist church are built on the foundation of the Christian church, anything that attacks the foundation of the Christian church threatens the pillars of Adventism. I would like to return us to the great miracle of Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council closed in unity. Unity and love is a DNA marker of genuine Christianity. This unity was the most important testimony and is the testimony that is needed today. This was not a super superficial unity built around compromise. They were of one accord. The Christian church, which began in unity in Acts 1 and remained in unity in Acts 15, must close in unity. Men and women, youth and age, every race and culture working together in harmony under God's direction. This is the only testimony to the world that matters. Ordination is an important part of unity. It was designed of God to preserve our unity. Ordination restored unity in the early church when the seven deacons were ordained. Christ prayed his prayer for unity where we could overhear with tears. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Christ's prayer was not only that each separate generation of believers would be in harmony with each other, but that all from the first generation to the last generation would be in harmony. The last generation one with the disciples and the early church. This is the remnant principle. The last of the bolt is like the first. The Christian church is to form one antiphonal choir, all following one director, all in harmony, in tune without one discordant independent note. It is important to examine the original cloth on the bolt. What was the early church like? Is the Seventh-day Adventist church today living and teaching what Paul and the apostles taught? Are the two churches one, separated only by time, not biblical belief or practice? If the Jerusalem Council had been considering the question of ordaining women, how would it have decided 
any general conference must be focused on making the decision that would keep the body of believers in harmony, one, with the early church by keeping it in harmony with the Bible. The decision must be based on the divine order given in Scripture, not some in time politically correct and cultural preference. Jesus did not allow the culture of the times to influence his decisions, such as in making disciples. His decision was clear. It says he chose those he himself wanted. Is the corporate body of the church utilizing the women of the church like Christ and the apostles utilized them, treating each with dignity and importance? What ministry did Jesus give women? Is the remnant church the promoter of the same women's ministries? The ministry of Peter's mother-in-law was so important that Christ healed her so that she could resume it on the Sabbath. Unselfish women ministered with their substance. Dorcas' ministry was so important that God resurrected her so that she could continue it. Paul listed the qualifications for women whose ministry entitled them to church, the church's sustentation fund. 1 Timothy 5, she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Is the remnant church in unity with these early believers? Is the church seconding Paul's emphasis on the importance of women bringing up children in the fear of the Lord? We don't have to wonder if Paul wrote this passage for some unique situation there in Ephesus. We don't have to wonder if he is trying to describe both men and women in this passage. He's writing to women. On the other hand, what did God expect from men who were overseers? If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work, Paul said. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. The Catholic Church rejected this instruction. We should not join them in rejecting this clear instruction. Temperate. Sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine. The papists who rejected this as well. And they rejected the next two also. Not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submit, submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God. Again, we must not join the Catholic Church in rejecting this important instruction of Paul. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into a reproach and the snare of the devil. Our pioneers early adopted this biblical instruction as an important element of church organization. If we would be one with the early church, this must, be, this must continue to be taught as a component of church organization till Jesus comes. Those in the circumcision party didn't accept Paul's instruction. 
They felt that at most it would apply only to unique circumstances. In Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White states emphatically, and I quote, Paul had been enabled to communicate lessons of divine wisdom which met the necessities, listen carefully, of all classes and which were to apply at all times, in all places, and under all conditions. Though there is nothing difficult to understand about the word all, we have difficulty understanding what we don't want to do. To say that Paul's instruction on church leadership doesn't apply to all classes, at all times, in all places, and under all conditions, is to contradict the sworn testimony of Jesus himself. Paul's instruction on leadership qualification applies today just as it applied when he was inspired to write it. Those in the circumcision party didn't accept Paul's instruction. The Catholic Church chose not to accept Paul's instruction as it reads. Now the Seventh-day Adventist Church is at a similar crossroad. Will we learn not to go beyond what is written? Satan would love to hijack the remnant church as he hijacked the early church. He advances his program little by little with gradual erosion of faithfulness to the Bible. He would succeed but for the constant protection and watchful vigilance of Christ over his church. Today, Christ calls us. He calls you. He calls me to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.